Well, good evening. We are thankful you are here this evening, and again, for the opportunity to study together. Thank you so much, especially to anyone who may be visiting with us. I hope that you're encouraged by our time together as well. We are continuing in a series tonight that we've been looking at for uh, just one Sunday night a month in particular. And um, the person that I kind of borrowed this idea from, I was listening to his lesson on this particular book. And uh, he pointed out, you know, for the first year, you can kind of keep up with which book we're on based on how many we go through the Bible, you know, 12 months. But after this year, uh, God willing, we'll continue on. We'll not be able to keep count. But we began in January looking at the book of Genesis and beginning there going through the Old Testament and kind of working our way book by book. Now, it's interesting, any of you that have ever had a Bible maybe that was laid out in, uh, in a format of chronologically, uh, usually oftentimes those may begin with Genesis but then jump to Job, or sometimes you find Bibles that will go Scripture verse by verse kind of chron- chronologically, and that's a little interesting because we're so used to the format of the way that we have it, and while uh, there's nothing wrong with that per se to have them uh, book by book like that, uh, there you know, it can be a benefit to consider how things actually fit together when we think about it from a historical perspective. Um, I know that we're very careful here on purpose, of course, uh, but to treat the Old Testament as, as fact, as history, uh, when we use terms like that Bible story or that Bible character, it's not meant to refer to something like a tall tale or a fable or a character like Mickey Mouse. It's meant to refer to a, a person. Uh, and we just use that term sometimes because we're used to it, a term like character. But we're talking about real people and real things. And so it's beneficial to us. Even as New Testament people, we think a lot about misconceptions. That's sort of what our sermons on Sunday morning have been after or or sort of uh, taking care of in a way is misconceptions that people have, understanding why we do certain things. And so one of the misconceptions, of course, that some people have is that uh, members of the Church of Christ don't believe in the Old Testament or, or want nothing to do with the Old Testament. And we know that's not the case, and we learn a lot from it. We're reminded, of course, first and foremost of the words of Paul to those in Rome in Romans 15, 4, that those things that were written aforetime, those things that were written before, are there for our learning. Just as much as we would take our history book and try to teach our young people about the good things in the history of the United States of America, United States of America, or even in the history of the state of Tennessee, and also those bad things, those mistakes that were made, those things that we can learn from. We can do the same exact thing with the Bible. Now, when it comes to the Bible, of course, we are thinking more along the lines of morality in that way, and rightfully so. Many of you know that, uh, especially in this area, the Bible is sometimes taught uh, in the school system as a means of history even, and so that is encouraging. But let's not forget the benefit that we can get as we consider these different people, the different things they went through, uh, just from a historical fact, but even more so from a, a moral standpoint, if you will, or, or from a way that we can learn uh, these stories. We take those uh, fables, we take those tall tales, and we read them to our children at night to teach them about the way the world works, Uh, but at the same time, let's not forget these biblical stories. We're going to begin, or going to continue tonight, excuse me, continue 
looking at 2 Samuel as it connected last month to 1 Samuel. The biggest connection, if you will recall, that we said last month is that we believe, just simply from looking at history, that the only reason we have a 1 and 2 Samuel is because simply the scroll got too big. It got too much to unfurl and to open up and to be read. And so at some point, the book of Samuel more than likely was split into 1 and 2 Samuel. Nothing necessarily, you know, a big deal about that or anything to worry about when it comes to the Bible. Uh, but there, because of that fact, it, there may have been one scroll that was Samuel, uh, but it became too large. It was broken up into 1 and 2 now, it's also interesting as it was broken down because 1 Samuel dealt a lot with Saul, but 2 Samuel was going to deal with David. In fact, where we're going to begin tonight is I'd like to give you three different breakdowns of the book. What is in your outline, if you've got your bulletin in front of you and you're looking at the outline, what is in there is the third. So let me give you a couple others real quick, and then we'll get to the third and you can fill in your blanks then. This is a way that one writer broke down the book, and I thought it was so simple it was just too easy not to include. But chapters 1 through 10 could be considered David's fame, and the rest of the book could be considered David's shame. Now, we're going to talk a lot about it tonight. Our applications that we're going to make at the end of the lesson are really just going to come from the center of the book, the middle of the book, chapters 11 and 12, are, of course, David and Bathsheba, and Uriah, and even as Nathan comes along to tell David and point out to David what he has done. So it's hard to not break the book down based upon that. It falls right in the middle, if you will, and it's right there in the center, and it affects so much of what we know about David. So we're going to touch on it a lot, but this was an interesting way, David's fame and David's shame. Chapter 11 through chapter, part of chapter 12 is his sin and the repentance that he gives when Nathan confronts him. We talked about that not too long ago as it was the topic that I was assigned on a summer series this summer. Uh, but then chapters 12 through 18 uh, deal with the fact that the sword would not depart. If you recall in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse number 10, it is there that Nathan tells David, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, that's God, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And so because of David's shame, because of his sin, Nathan makes this promise through God that the sword would not depart. And really chapters 12 through 18 cover this idea of David's shame based upon that sin. One more before we get to your outline there. You might break it down in chapters 1 through 10 as David's early success. Chapters 11 and 12 as his grievous sins. And then chapters 13 through 24 as his genuine sorrow. You know, there, there's a lot of people, both men and of course mainly men, but even women, good women that we learn from because of their life. That we look at their story and they're laid bare. Remember the point that we made in the lesson this morning, whether it's the two guys that we talked about uh, there in 1 Timothy or whether it's even Peter. But a lot of these folks are laid bare in front of the world and, and, of course, in front of all history. As long as this earth stands and people are here on the earth and we have the Bible that we are reading, then David's good news and David's bad news are going to be known. Both his fame and his shame, both his success and his sin, and yes, even his sorrow are going to be there for us to dissect 
and for us to break down. And of course, many of us here in the South enjoy uh, football this time of year in the fall, and it's always easy on Sunday morning or Monday morning to go back and blame the coach or the quarterback or whoever we feel like might have been at fault. We can do the same thing as we look back at the life of David and exactly begin to, to lay blame and to point fingers and all of these things. But it helps us, it should be encouraging for us as we can kind of think about that and make application even as we'll do here in just a moment at the end of the lesson. So this third outline is the one that's in your bulletin there if you're following along and taking notes. And it's along the same lines, the chapters kind of fit in the same way. Chapters 1 through 10, in this sense, they're going to use T words. Uh, chapters 1 through 10 are David's triumphs. Now, for the purpose tonight, in, in our time tonight, we don't have time to go through all of those. I always try to encourage you as best you can, maybe in the next week, to flip through and think about Second Samuel a little bit. And as you look through chapters 1 through 10, there are several different instances of David doing many good things as king. He is a great leader. He is a valiant warrior. There's so much we know about him. And so we see, first of all, his triumph. Secondly, we see David's transgression. This is chapter 11 there with the sin of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. Again, we'll come back to it a little bit more. But we see David's transgression. Great as it is, serious as it is, as much as it continues on. And then from this outline, this particular third outline here, I'd like for us to touch on for just a moment and kind of make a little bit of application. But we also see David's troubles. In chapters 12 through 24, is it not a fact of life, to make a little application here a little bit earlier in the lesson, is it not a fact of life that troubles always follow transgression? If we're being very honest with ourselves, when we find ourselves sometimes in the throes of trouble, we look around us and we wonder why everything is going wrong. Sometimes, not always, sometimes we can go back a few days maybe even hours, maybe even months, and find a transgression in our life. A transgression that maybe was just but of a moment. A transgression that even like David and Bathsheba seemed to be just very passing. A transgression that oftentimes we feel like nobody knows about but me. But then trouble follows after it. And then we're reminded that God does see all. He knows, and sometimes it's a fact of life, that our troubles follow our transgressions. Now, the other problem with that for us, and I, I mean to say it specifically that way, the other problem with that for us is that the troubles are not always immediate. We made the point this morning in the lesson that with God's second law of pardon, the opportunity that he gives us to become a Christian, it's not that you become a Christian and then one mess up in your dad. It's not that immediate. Same thing is true of our troubles and our transgressions. It's not that we mess up and then immediately we see some type of punishment. We might like that sometimes. We might prefer that to get the hurt out of the way. We might like it because it points out our sorrow and our transgression. In the same sense that if you reach up or as a child reaches up and grabs a hold or touches a hot iron, they learn very immediately that they have transgressed a law of science, a law of heat, and that's going to hurt and they feel the pain. But for us, even as it was for David sometimes, that trouble is delayed. It's not always immediate that we begin to go through the troubles and we lose sight of the transgression. And that is when later sometimes we look at God and we raise our hands and we say, why? Why? And again, I don't mean to say that every time uh, that we have trouble, it's because of something. Certainly tragedy strikes and it's not our fault. 
You think about a young family maybe that's killed by a drunk driver. They did nothing wrong. So I don't mean to say that every single time there's trouble, there is a transgression. But yes, many times that is simply a fact of life. And so I think that's an interesting way to sort of break down the book in a very short fashion. Let's talk for just a moment about a theme, if you will. If we had to take a theme... The theme might be, and I'll let you begin to fill in your blanks there, and if you've got your Bibles while we're doing this, uh, you can be turning to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as you're filling in there, the theme that we might suggest, and I often mention to you that as I kind of put these together, I rely on a few different sources, uh, and so you could, could say several different things. But one might be that God builds the kingdom of Israel through the successes of David and despite the failures of David. And of course, he is better known as a man after God's own heart. He's perhaps the greatest king in Israel. I mean, it, 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 you know, you could take a vote. We could go back and argue about it, just like we like to argue over who is the greatest football player of all time or the greatest team. We could discuss about it, but perhaps the greatest king in all of Israel doing so many great things for God. In fact, an interesting note is that David as well, this, this point of 2 Samuel and David here, is kind of almost halfway between Abraham and Christ. One of the things that I've tried to do through a few of these Book of the Month studies and point out from time to time is Christ in the Old Testament. We know that even from the beginning, things are pointing the way towards Jesus the Christ coming. And so to just touch on it here for just a moment, and we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, but David is sort of halfway between Abraham and Christ. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when we think about Christ in 2 Samuel, uh, in there David is wanting to build a house. There in verse number two, the king David says to Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. He says, I want to build the temple. I want to build a house. And Nathan says in verse number three, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But then verse number four begins with that little word, but. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, And God tells Nathan to tell David, no, don't do that. And one of the reasons why is beginning there in verse number 11 of chapter 7 and going down through verse 16, he says David is not going to build the house, but God is going to build the house. And it's not just going to be the temple, but it is going to be a house, as he says in verse number 13, a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Going on down even through verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. We begin to again point the way towards what is coming in the New Testament. God built David a house. Instead of David building God a house, God built David a house. Why did God build it or what's the significance? Because when God builds it, it will last forever. And so we see this pointing forward here towards the New Testament and towards Christ. But certainly as we think about the book of 2 Samuel, uh, God is going to build the kingdom of Israel. He's going to be successful, if you will. But that is sometimes because of and other times despite the people that he has to deal with. 
I mean, we feel like we come short so often. We feel like that we are broken, that we are just humans and we can't get it done. But I would submit to you that one of the applications we can make tonight is that God continues to grow his kingdom. He continues to see it succeed despite us at times and even because of us at times. As I said this morning in the lesson, I don't mean to cause anyone worry when they leave, although we need to make sure that we're constantly testing things and checking ourselves. At the same time, we can leave with hope. And we can know that we are, if we're trying to be faithful, continuing to further the borders of the kingdom. One other thing before we get into some verses and some applications. Who wrote the book? We talked a little bit about this last week. It is uncertain, and it is possibly Nathan or Gad. If you've got your Bible there, I asked you last month to turn over to Second Chronicles, excuse me, First Chronicles. First Chronicles 29 and verse number 29. It is there, First Chronicles 29, 29. That the Bible records for us, now the acts, the things, the events of King David, first and last, indeed they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. What are those? Where are those? What all does that mean? Well, we don't have a whole lot of time tonight to firmly break it down, as you might if you were taking like a college-level course. But we see that Nathan and Gad recorded the events of David. So did they write 2 Samuel? It's possible, but we cannot say for sure when it comes to these different things. A few key verses tonight, and if you've got your Bible, you'll want to follow along. First of all, 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7. Most of you are familiar with this, even if you could not quote the passage because it is in 2 Samuel 6 and verse number 6 that we meet a man by the name of Uzzah. And we meet Uzzah very quickly, and Uzzah doesn't make it very long in our Bibles. Because within just a verse or so here, he is going to be dead uh, by the ark of God. And if you recall, that is because as the ark is beginning to tumble, he reaches out and touches it. Now, our children, our young people, know this because we studied very intently the book of Exodus last year, it is in Exodus 37 that the Bible discusses the fact that the ark was supposed to be uh, carried by poles because no one was to touch it. It is in Numbers chapter 4, one of the places in Numbers 4, that it is discussed that no one is to touch it, that there are certain people who are supposed to be carrying it. And by the way, when we go forward from Exodus and Numbers to 2 Samuel, we're talking about 500 years Possibly around 500 years that this has been known. And yet here we are, still being disobedient, not carrying the ark the way that God said it needed to be carried for their protection. And when it does begin to tumble, as it says there in verse number uh, 6, that as the oxen are going to stumble, and Uzzah, bless his heart, again for all of eternity, is known as one reaching out and touching it, and going against the law of God there, uh, and then he's going to be struck dead. 500 years, God's giving the instructions. People are choosing whether or not to follow them. Uh, this is not exactly application, but something to certainly consider. 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13, we've already uh, touched on those uh, just a few moments ago. But that is where God is pointing the way toward Nathan through God, or God through Nathan maybe is a better way to say it. It's pointing the way towards Christ, pointing the, the way towards the kingdom. Because David wanted to build the house, but God said, no, I will build the house because that house will last forever. Second Samuel chapter 12 and verses 22 and 23. You may have heard this read before as well. 
After Nathan the prophet comes into David and points out his sin and says to him, of course, you are the man. And David realizes that. You may recall beginning in verse number 15 of 2 Samuel chapter 12 that David begins to feel the effects of this. The child that is born because of this is struck and dies and David goes into mourning. Again, I say you've probably heard this before because maybe it's at a funeral or maybe it's in the moments uh, or days leading up to that as we sometimes mourn and David is doing that there so much so that the people are afraid to go to him and to talk to him and to tell him. And as you go down through verses 15 through uh, 21 there and then we'll pick up at verse number 22. And David says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. A passage that is pointed out often uh, around the time of death sometimes and the way that that works and the way that we often mourn. 2 Samuel 12 Uh, 22 and 23. And then a very interesting passage kind of just tucked away towards the end. When you come to 2 Samuel 22, David is praying, if you will, or giving praise. He's speaking these words. And in verse number 21, he he says an interesting phrase. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. When David is saying these words to God, and we go back and read them, we see an interesting point, and it goes forward even in the New Testament. This is one of those overarching principles of the Bible that God will reward, that God will hear, that God will hear and answer the prayers of those who are faithful to him. David says here that according to the cleanness of my hands... Back up, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. No, it's not always that we do one good deed and we get pardoned ten times or we do ten good things and that erases so many bad things. But in a sense, the Lord will hear. This is an illustration of the condition by which Jehovah hears and answers the call of his people. We talked about this very recently when we talked about the fact of whether or not God hears the prayers of sinners. Yes, we are all sinners to a degree in the fact that we still continue to sin. But if we are trying to live righteously, as David says here, according to my righteousness, the cleanness of my hands, those people who have a humble disposition and are trying to live faithfully will be the recipients of the Lord's help. It goes all the way back to the beginning and it comes all the way forward to 2019 and as long as we are here. That if we will be faithful, God will hear us and he will answer. It may not be always what we want to hear, but he is there listening and he will reward. A few practical lessons. I've got a couple and then the third one is the one that's in your outline. We've touched on some of these already. From 2 Samuel chapter 11, disastrous sin begins when a person gives himself permission to look where he should not and or think as he should not. I usually try to include New Testament passages on here. and You may want to turn to those. 2 Samuel 11 is the story of David and Bathsheba there at the very beginning. We recall that David was not where he was supposed to be. He was not doing the things he was supposed to be doing. And so when we begin to let ourselves off the hook just a little bit, when we begin just to give a little bit of a crack in our life, 
for sin to creep in. That's when, as I like the way it's worded there, disastrous sin begins. We think we're giving an inch, but the devil is going to take a mile. We think we're giving an inch, but sin is going to plow through and begin to destroy our lives. You may recall in Mark chapter 7, excuse me, in verses 14 through 23, Jesus is speaking about the things outside and the things inside. He says there in verse number 15, There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him. Those are the things that defile a man. And go down to verses 21 and 22. He reiterates it and he even gives some other points. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. We oftentimes look at other people and we say, how could they do that? What is it that would motivate them to do that? Especially good people that we know of. Why would they go and do that? Murder, fornication, theft. I never thought they were like that. Well, we can't see the inside. We can't see people's heart. It's not that outside, but that it is that, that we, is within us that defiles us. Disastrous sin begins when we give ourselves permission when we open the door just a little bit and say, it's not a big deal. It's really not. If I watch that, if I hear that, if I go there, if I do that, if I say that, not a big deal. But as we begin to give ourselves permission to just go a little bit, then next thing you know, it's full blown. You find yourself caught up in the transgression. And as we said earlier, the troubles soon follow. Number two, we must do good for those who are in need. Now, we didn't get a chance to talk about 2 Samuel chapter 9. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, we meet a man by the name of Mephibosheth. I knew I was going to bundle that there the first time. Uh, David shows kindness to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. You may recall from 1 Samuel, particularly 1 Samuel chapter 20, where David makes the promise to Jonathan that he will look after his family, that he will honor him. And you may remember between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse number 16, uh, that it is that Jonathan, excuse me, verse number 17, now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. That's the relationship between David and Jonathan. We, we've studied that before, and you may recall that relationship. As he loved his own soul, that is how close they were. We see that borne out in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Mephibosheth is a cripple, if you will, has had trouble. And so in verse number 1, David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And so they bring about and find Mephibosheth, and David is able to show him some kindness. There is a practical application for us, even in the New Testament age, in the Christian age, that we must do good for those who are in need. You know Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 10, where it talks about doing good for those who are in need, especially to those who are the household of faith. We have that responsibility. Remember that Paul says there to them in Galatia, Therefore, as we have opportunity, I don't remember if it was Charles or someone Friday night at the men's retreat for just a moment, mentioned the fact that, you know, we often have plenty of opportunities in front of us. 
We often have plenty of opportunities. And that's not just to teach the gospel, but even to do good for people. And so even as our elders said this morning in their statement that we may be doing away or or stopping to do one thing for a while, we are striving to continue to do more, to look for new ways or other ways to help those who are in need. We must go about doing those things. The golden rule, Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 12 deals with that. First and foremost, with each one of us that I would do unto others as I have done unto me. And David exemplifies that in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Lastly tonight, and then the lesson will be yours, sin has far-reaching consequences, which sometimes we fail to take into account. You may not have to turn to Luke 15, you're obviously welcome to, but if you recall, Luke 15 is going to be something that we're going to discuss a lot in the coming months, because Luke is the book for the Bible Bowl this year for Lads to Leaders. Luke 15 is the theme for Lads to Leaders, for the convention year 2020. And the theme is very simply, lost. When we come to Luke 15, specifically verses 11 through 18, we meet the lost son. We don't call him that because the world often calls him the prodigal son. But either way, the prodigal son learns a hard lesson. That doing what I want to do, living life the way that I want to live it, depending on the translation that you're looking at, many of them say with riotous living, has far-reaching consequences. You never know when you find yourself with the pigs, which may have meant something a little different to those in the Jewish time, of course. But even today, we would consider something beneath us, something dirty, a place that we wouldn't want to be. But oftentimes, we fail to take into account the consequences that come because of the things that we've done. We've already touched on 2 Samuel 12. When Nathan gives that powerful parable pointing out the sin of David. And David has to come to that realization that yes, my sin has gone that far. I thought it was just between me. I thought it was just between me and those who maybe thought they knew what I did. Maybe some people had an idea. Maybe it was just gossiped about, but I knew, but but nobody else knew. And David's reminded from Nathan, yes, you are the man. You are the one. And it has some great and terrible consequences. Even in that case, up to the point of murder. And, of course, how the sword would not depart from the house of David. There are a lot of terrible things that happen sometimes, and we fail to take those things into account. You think about a young person or even an adult who finds himself in the midst of sin, in the midst of losing their family because of selfish selfish decisions. You say, why? Why would you do that? Why would you go that far? And they will simply look at you and say, I didn't think about it. In the moment, I did not consider the seriousness of it. I did not think about the consequences. We drill it into our teenagers. We drill it into our young people. And yet as adults, we sometimes find ourselves in the same position. Even as a man after God's own heart found himself in the same position. There's a lot of good things in 2 Samuel, in the whole book of 2 Samuel. Even besides just chapters 11 and 12. But I hope that you can be reminded of that tonight and maybe if you get a chance even study it a little more through the week or even in the coming weeks. We appreciate so much the opportunity to live in the Christian age, to live under God's new covenant, to have it a possibility that we can have our sins washed away. And as we are about to sing this song of encouragement here tonight, we will be singing to encourage anyone here tonight that has not made that great commitment, have their sins washed away by the blood of Christ, be added to the church by God so we can begin living faithfully as a member of the body of Christ. 
Maybe you're here and you've done that, and like David, you've been faithful at one time, but you have wandered from the truth, even as we talked about in our lesson this morning. We're thankful that God makes it possible. We are thankful that we have brothers and sisters that show up here, that as together we worship God, we can also sing to encourage one another, that we can pray for one another through the good times and through the bad, that we can lift one another up even when we struggle. As I sometimes say, not that we point and laugh at each other, but that we know that we can count on one another to lift each other up even in times of struggle. Whether you need to become a Christian or come back to him, you can make it known now as we stand together and as we sing.